Hi, Lab Rats. Before we get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Crime Keeper. Bless your heart for joining me today, lab rats, and thank you kindly. How's your mom and them? Hope she's doing well along with your daddy. I'm actually escaping the lab later today and joining V and our mama for some dining at the melting pot. Let's hope things don't get too carried away and she ends up telling us to stop being ugly. Lord have mercy do I have a good show for you today. As you may have guessed, I looked up phrases Georgians are known for as we focus in today on spooky savannah. I'm going to dispense with the newsflash and what the fuck segments and settle right on into the main event. Here we go. Spooky Savannah. It's not just midnight in the garden of good and evil. P.S. Do not look up creepy when you're looking up anything. If you put creepy in first, you will get what you ask for, which is totally perfect for some of us. And obviously in this situation. Let's start with some history as per usual. I found practicalwonderlust.com, things nobody tells you about Savannah, Georgia. So we'll start there. I didn't include everything. It's a very extensive list. Great for them, but needed to condense it for our purposes. Savannah's squares were meticulously planned out before the city even existed. This was by James Oglethorpe, who was a member of British Parliament, who was the founder of Georgia. Savannah was initially very progressive. It was a land of opportunity for poor folk trapped in the downward spiral of debtors' prisons, so it was the champion of prison reform. It was promised as free land, 50 acres for everyone, including a house downtown and a plot of land for farming. Everyone was promised the exact same size house and the exact same amount of land, made it even playing field, pretty literally. Oglethorpe also bucked the trend of treating the existing residents of the Americas with hostility. Instead, he befriended the local indigenous people, the Yamacraw tribe, and established a peaceful relationship with Chief Tamachichi, whose monument you can find in Wright Square. I almost said Tamagotchi because I'm a kid of the 80s, and that was a thing. Look it up. When Savannah was first founded, four things were outlawed. Number one was slavery. Because, shocker, human bondage was every bit as horrifying to champions of human rights in the 1730s as it seems to us today. Number two, Catholicism. Because he felt the Spanish in Florida were Catholics and Britain was not a fan of the Spanish in Florida. Number three, liquor. Damn near killed her. Oglethorpe wasn't trying to found a party colony per se, and I suppose when you bring over a boat full of people recently released from prison, you gotta set some ground rules. Number four, attorneys. I say lawyers 
Most people say lawyers, but if you spell it as law in it, I say it's lawyers, just like Sawyer. But I am Marilyn Harper's daughter, and she also says Haggerty instead of Hagrid from Harry Potter, so give me some slack there. So no attorneys, just because, like, fuck lawyers, I guess. Started with those four tenets, no slavery, no Catholicism, liquor, or lawyers. Then it all goes to hell. Oglethorpe's peaceful, egalitarian, humanitarian approach to the founding of Savannah and the utopian colony of Georgia lasted about as long as he did. Ten years in, he fell in love, headed back to England, and everything immediately changed. Residents demanded the ability to compete with other southern colonies, like Charleston, who was stupid rich and made everyone in Savannah feel salty and petty. And so in 1750, slavery was legalized, followed by probably the attorneys. Ugh. On the dark side, oh yeah. Savannah was once the largest slave port in the South. Super. And was the site of the largest sale of human beings in America's history. So I'm starting to feel icky already. Known as the Weeping Time, River Street's sad history is memorialized by the African-American Monument. In 1820, Savannah was ravished by a yellow fever epidemic. Every inch of Savannah is haunted. So that's not good, but we look at the first two things we talked about, slavery and yellow fever epidemic, which will be a theme throughout this. Duh, no wonder. Most of the porches in Savannah are painted with haint blue to ward off ghosts and evil spirits. So that is an actual blue type that they reference because um, I don't know if you've heard the term hainted, but it means haunted. I like to say hainted because it's fun and folksy. Savannah is in hoodoo country. So maybe that goes into the hainted, hoodoo hainted. Spirituality plus folk magic mixed with homeopathy and root work which is really just natural medicine. And it plays a big part in the trial of Jim Williams. We'll get to that a little bit, but again, I talked about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. We're gonna get more into him and his uh, haunted place soon. So switching gears, thank God. Savannah contributions. The Girl Scouts were founded in Savannah and their founder was Death. Juliet Gordon Lowe was uh, born into a wealthy family She ended up, I think she ended up turning deaf later in life, slow, like one ear and then another ear. And she turned that to good, started the Girl Scouts, getting women's out there doing their thing. Savannah is the hometown of famous composer Johnny Mercer, who I wasn't as familiar with, my bad. He was a legendary American lyricist, songwriter, and singer who co-founded Capitol Records. Good for him. Good for Savannah. Tutti Fruity, the ice cream flavor, was invented in Savannah. So let's end on that positive history note, shall we? And let's switch to something more Crime Keeper. This is according to Wikipedia. It's probably totally gauche to say, but I I do enjoy a good axe murder story. So there, it's out there. You're here. You're with me, right? Let's talk about the Savannah Axe Murders. December 1909, there was a triple homicide in the downtown area. 70-year-old Eliza Gribble and her daughter, 36-year-old Carrie Olander, were found beaten to death inside their home. 
and a third woman was clinging to life, later dying from her injuries. Carrie's body was in the hall, and her throat had been slit after being raped. Her mother, Eliza, was in the back bedroom with her skull bludgeoned, showing the imprint of an axe, her newspaper and reading glasses at her feet while she sat in her chair. So totally snuck up on her and just whack. Ugh, it's horrible. A lot of imagery there, obviously. Maggie Hunter was the 34-year-old, had moved in the day before, and had been found at the front door with her throat slit and head battered. She advised that her estranged husband, J.C. Hunter, had been the perpetrator of the attacks, but not before the townsfolk had targeted the city's black citizens because slavery. A riot erupted before being reported in the newspapers, and fences were torn down, doors were busted in. So the riot broke out before it was printed that Maggie said, hey, it's the ex, not anyone else. Three men were indicted, J.C. Hunter being one of them. He was 64, so he had himself a young thing, along with Willie Walls and John Coker. Only J.C. Hunter was sentenced to death for the murders on 1910, and then it was commuted to life sentence the day before he was set to be executed. He did, however, receive a pardon by Governor Clifford Walker on October 27th of 1923, and then, after being released, returned to Savannah. Like, how long was that? 1909 to 19, yeah, but, I mean, an axe murder? Murders in general don't get forgotten, and something like that? Interesting, but wow. Let's now move on to list verse, because you know I enjoy the hell out of a list. They list the 10 most infamous murder houses, and two of them are uh, located in our focus here of Spooky Savannah. Number eight on the list is the Conrad Aiken House, which is located at 228 East Oglethorpe Avenue in Savannah. Built in 1842, the Pulitzer Prize winner lived with his family, where his father was a prominent surgeon. The family was wealthy and respected. Unfortunately, his father was mentally ill, and all this built up to the tragic incidents February 27th of 1901. Young Conrad heard his parents arguing about finances and heard gunshots. He ran into the room to find his parents' bodies. His father had murdered his mother before turning the gun himself. After living with relatives, Conrad later returned to Savannah and bought the house next door to where the tragedy occurred. He was also a frequent visitor to the Bonaventure Cemetery where his parents were laid to rest. Conrad died in 1973 at 84 years old. Today, the house is owned by Dr. Jackson Morgan, who allowed paranormal investigators in. They recorded orbs and voices, as they usually find in those type of situations. Are they Conrad's parents? One can only speculate. And that little last part was my total thing. Number four on their list was the Mercer Williams House on 429 Bull Street in Savannah. The home was built between 1860 and 1868, and it changed ownership several times, once serving as a Shriners Temple. Two people died accidental deaths at the location, 
including a young boy who fell off the roof and was impaled on an iron railing. Oof, I did not see that coming. What the fuck was he doing on the roof? I mean, I lived through the 70s where there was a lot of things parents didn't do and it was common to like let your kid run around and stuff, but I guess maybe it was similar to like, hey mom, I'm hanging on the roof for a while. When I see the porch lights come on, I'm gonna come down and go inside for dinner. I don't know, but sad. After years of vacancy, it was purchased in 1969 by Jim Williams, a preservationist and antique dealer. He was known for throwing extravagant parties like Gatsby-esque until 1981 when he shot his assistant slash lover, Danny Hansford. Williams had four trials in eight years before being acquitted. Rumors have it, rumors have it, a voodoo pact ensured his freedom. The parties resumed, but not long after, Williams died of pneumonia complications eight months later. His body was said to have been found in the exact spot he would have fallen if Danny would have shot him. Now, if you watch the movie, in the movie version, I haven't read the book, but you can, of course, watch the movie, read the book to find out more about the whole situation. There is a great character in there who recently passed away, a black drag queen. Awesome person. You have to watch it for that alone. But back to the... Back to the exact spot issue that I have. In the movie, he does um, get shot at or he shoots himself and falls. They have him falling and then imagining, you know, Danny's body looking over at Danny's body where it, would have, where it did fall when he shot him. So they're saying that, oh, his body would have fallen right here in the study where it happened. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but, you know, people are people and want to find connections when things are odd and messed up. The house today is owned by his sister, who manages it as a museum. This takes us to visitsavannah.com, and again, another list of the six most haunted places in Savannah that you can actually visit. I like this type of thing because it's not only history but it's a crime usually took place there's a spook level so that's what i have done with this list i start off with a little factoid then i go into some history i put or place all the scary stuff under the spook level and then i give you how many igors i feel it is on um igor scary score say that nine times scary score scary score I guess it's not that hard. Anywho, the f- number one is the Hamilton Turner Inn. Savannah is reported to be the most haunted city in the U.S. of A. With the Hamilton Turner Inn being, of course, featured in the aforementioned Savannah movie from 1997 with one of my loves, original loves, John Cusack and Kevin Spacey, not one of my loves, and is presently a boutique hotel or at that point was a boutique hotel at whatever time this article was written history this was built for mr samuel Pugh hamilton who would become the mayor of savannah and grand master of the knights templar by jd hall 
the first home to install electricity in the city, and the Hamilton Turner Inn was eventually turned into a private art museum replete with a night guard who would be posted on the roof until he wasn't. He was found dead after being shot in the back of the head, and this crime is still unsolved. Hamilton then was forced to begin this duty himself, only to become sick a few months into it and died. 1915, the inn was sold to Dr. Francis Turner, and he, it occupied him and his family. The basement served as his office. Rumors that he performed autopsies there abound, but the home was also where parties were thrown. Not content to be banished up to bed, the children were said to have played with the billiard balls, rolling them down the floor. In the act of retrieving one of the balls, one of the daughters fell down the stairs to her death. Spook level. Children laughing because apparently connected to the Turner children, the phantom billiard balls hopping off the table and rolling on the floor again because of the children, and a cigar-smoking man sitting on the roof, which reminds me of the smoking man on X-Files, but it was not. It was probably that night duty dude who was uh, guarding the building. Also, it was said to be that a Civil War soldier walks the halls and sometimes even knocks on the doors. No. Scary score, three Igors. And what goes into that, as you'll see, I start breaking it down for you, but if you're just hearing something, okay, that's a spook level of like one, depending on what you're hearing. When there's physical stuff like things, you know, rolling around in other rooms and stuff, okay, that's still lower on the score because it's still spooky. When you start seeing an actual ghost, then that, that's a four or five kids. Knocking on the doors again, going to sounds, all right because then as long as I don't open the door, see anything, and it stops. All right, so that's lower in the score. Number two, Marshall House. Marshall House, one of the best haunted hotels in the U.S. and one of the oldest hotels in Savannah. The Marshall House was used as a hospital three times since 1851. Union soldiers during the Civil War and during two yellow fever epidemics. Told you it was gonna rear its ugly head there with that. History. Mary Marshall developed properties in the city, which is a pretty impressive accomplishment for the 1840s. Rock on out, Mary Marshall. Do it, girl. 1999, it was renovated and the found artifacts are on display. So whenever you're renovating, you find things from previous owners. It can get kind of spooky, as we all know, for Stude's name that has that, not Zach Baggins, because he's a douche, but the nephew of the Warrens. I used to watch his show. I'll have to look it up. But he has like this haunted museum, Zaphis Museum of the Paranormal. It's John Zaphis is the nephew of the controversial paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. So he has his museum in Stratford, Connecticut. Be careful when you find those artifacts, antiques too. When you buy antiques, bring them into your house. Make sure you save the shit out of that so that way you're breaking, cutting all those ties and uh, to the former, any former spirits that cling on to her and just get rid of that energy because it may be negative. Back to the spook level of the Marshall House. 
the type of things that occur, hallway ghosties, sounds of children running, and faucets turning on by themselves. So not too much, so I'm going to give that a one Igor on the scary score. Again, sounds, it's, uh, it's there, but it's low on the uh, scary score totem pole. Number three, 1790 Inn and Restaurant. Now this Inn and Restaurant is Savannah's oldest inn, which was there prior to the foundation of the square we talked about from Ogilby, Oglethorpe, Oglethorpe. History. Anna Powers was a former resident and supposedly jumped out of a window to her death post-argument with a lover. It says a lover, not like her lover. So I don't know if they're saying that she was a, she was a twamp, bit of a trollop, whatever. But you hear that kind of stuff a lot. That, that's an old trope, a tramp trope. The spook level. It's reported that you may encounter the ghost of a scorned woman, i.e. probably Anna Powers. Now, I've seen it in another source I read. It was Anne Powers, not Anna. It may be Anne Powers, but that's what I have. An enslaved cook and servant boy may also be seen. And Miss Powers is a famous ghost who haunts the upstairs guest rooms waiting on the lost love. Another trope. Scary score, three Igors, because you may actually see the ghost of the cook, the servant boy, the scorned Miss Powers, and, you know, hauntings can also have sounds, but, you know, they're talking about actual full body, and I'm not down with that. The Pirate's House. This one-time saloon slash rest stop is one of the city's best-known restaurants. History. The location is on the first public agricultural experimental garden and then was later turned into housing once the city was established as a seaport. Said to be referenced in the book Treasure Island after author Robert Louis Stevenson visited the pub. Due to its location, it was famous for being used as a smuggler's den for Golden Alcohol. Young blokes were often shanghaied in the basement due to the hidden tunnels leading to the port and forced to serve on the sea. Spook level. This spook level, because the list here initially didn't give a lot of ghostly encounters and such, so I took this from the littlehouseofhorrors.com. There are heavy footsteps and yelling that are heard from the tunnels. Employees have reported feeling a presence when they are alone and some have even seen full apparitions. Nope. It is said that the ghost of Captain Flint still haunts the building. And who knows, perhaps also the victims of the yellow fever pandemic haunt the tunnels. So still, you know, a lot of the pandemic as we know living through an epidemic, how that goes. Unfortunately, scary score, one Igor for the sounds, five Igors if a full ghost is seen. This takes us to number five, the Kehoe House. History, William Kehoe immigrated from Ireland and settled in the Old Fort District of Savannah with the rest of his family. The Kehoe fam had 10 members, and in parentheses I have a wowza in my notes, with two dying in the home, but this was not found to be rooted in truth when they were doing research. Just kind of a rumor. William then worked up his way in an iron foundry to being foreman, eventually purchasing the foundry. He then built a new home, which catapulted him to one of the city's most successful 
and prominent businessmen. When he married Anne Flood, so I thought that was funny because um, last name, maiden name was Flood. They, he worked near the riverfront. Anywho, and they lived in a seaport. He built the first home in Columbia Square, then a larger, more mansion-y one on the historic district designed by DeWitt Bruin, completed in 1892. William and Anne then took their own brood, O10, Yowza Wowza, uh, runs in the family, and the time, but large brood. And they moved into this big mansion. They had it until 1930, when the Kehoe heirs sold the home, and it has since been a boarding house, funeral home, and for a short time owned by Joe Namath, who then sold the property. Oh yeah, uh, what's his, what was his nickname? Uh, was it Jolton Joe? I think I totally made that up. Let's look. So Broadway Joe Namath. I like Jolton Joe. Spook level. Guests say they encounter ghost children during their stay at the now B&B. Also due to the never proven story of them getting stuck in a chimney and dying there. There are phantom perfumes, which you can insert my usual this is my new band comment here as well as guests being touched when they're sleeping, which I will pay extra for. Scary score, one Igor for the perfumes, four Igor if there's actual touching because not cool. Number six, Moon River Brewing Company. Some consider this brewing company to be the most haunted place in Savannah and is currently a beer house. History. Wikipedia says it opened on the site of the former Oglethorpe Brewing Company in 1999 and was originally the City Hotel, which was built in 1821. The City Hotel was the first hotel in Savannah and home to the first branch of both the U.S. Post Office and the branch of the Bank of the United States. 1851. Peter Wiltberger purchased it, putting a live lion and lioness on display to draw attention to his business, which really makes him the precursor for the Lion King. The turn of the century saw it used as a lumber and coal warehouse, then general storage. In the 1960s, it was renovated to be used as a supply store, closing in 1979 after Hurricane David took the roof off of it really can't continue to have any type of business or service industry there when you don't got no roof. It sat empty until 1995, then was renovated into a new brew pub. Paranormal peeps think people dying during the 1876 yellow fever outbreak. Paranormal peeps think people that died during the 1876 yellow fever outbreak linger because they said it was used as a makeshift hospital during the epidemic. A gambler named James Stark was killed in a fight with a town doctor on the staircase of the Old City Hotel in 1832. Which brings us to the spook level. The old historical woman in white apparition is at the top of the staircase. There are bottles that are thrown by invisible beings and also, these invisible beings breeze by patrons, as well as play tricks on staff. 
The basement and upstairs are reported to be the most active paranormal spots and good old James Stark may make an appearance. My scary score for this establishment, four Igors for thrown objects because, uh, huh? Five Igors for actual apparitions because you know how I feel. This takes us to our final segment, Crime Keepers Beakers Up. Wanted to do some different stories, not just focus on one. So I looked up feel-good stories and all that's interesting popped up. And I chose, I think, five here to kind of go into. The very last one about Mary Browser and being a Civil War spy, I focused the most on. It's the longest tale. These first few are shorter. First one that caught my eye was Marcel Marceau uses his mime skills to save children. As a member of the French Resistance, Marcel Marceau first developed his miming skills in order to keep children quiet while they evaded Nazi patrols on their way to the Swiss border. Marceau joined the French Resistance at 18 along with his brother and changed their name, their last name from the Jewish Mangle to that of a French Revolutionary General Marceau. Did not know that. Second story that really uplifted me was the Choctaw Nation assists adopted sister country, Ireland. In 1847, the Choctaw Nation charitably sent the Irish $170, which is more than $5,000 by today's standards, as relief. In historic remembrance and to aid the COVID-19-afflicted tribe, the Irish have followed suit. According to Smithsonian, a GoFundMe campaign to help the Navajo Nation and Hopi Reservation has already raised over $3 million. Love that shit. Then I found Candyland Origins. The colorful children's game Candyland came from a surprising place the polio ward of a hospital. There, a retired school teacher named Eleanor Abbott invented the game after her long hospital stay in San Diego. She was searching for a way to keep the kids busy during the required stay. The first edition of the board game actually shows when the boy and girl are at the start line, he is actually wearing a leg brace, which was a standard medical device to assist in walking from the effects of the disease. And, little personal side note, my grandfather actually had polio, and he lost my uncle and my dad to live with their mother while he recovered, but uh, he did recover and went on to be a psychiatrist, or maybe he was at that point, and a minister. So, little personal uh, connection there. Mary Browser's Civil War Spy. So this is our long one. The Confederates were sure former slave-turned-Union spy Mary Browser wouldn't be able to read the sensitive documents they left out around her. They were wrong. Mary Browser, I think it's actually Mary Bowser. Mary Bowser was born a slave in Virginia and worked with Richmond on the Richmond plantation of a hardware merchant named John Van Loo. 
as in the case of many slaves, not very much else is known about her early life. What we do know is that when Van Loo died, his daughter Elizabeth, who was a Quaker and staunch opponent to slavery, freed all of their slaves she had inherited and in a further act of generosity used her entire cash inheritance to purchase and free the other family members of her father's former slaves. Amazing. Bowser remained a servant in her former mistress's household, and when Van Loo realized how intelligent she was, she sent Bowser to be educated at the Quaker School for Negroes in Philadelphia. Van Loo herself had been educated by the Quakers in the North, and although she was a member of Richmond's elite, she harbored fiercely abolitionist views. When the Civil War broke out, she began to think about how she could use her unique position to help the cause she so fervently believed in. Van Loo started small, volunteering as a nurse at prison camps for Union soldiers and smuggling in food, books, and medicine with the help of her mother. This did not endear her to fellow Southerners. And there was even an article in the Richmond Inquirer reporting how a mother and daughter were giving assiduous attentions to the miscreants who have invaded our sacred soil. Two soldiers who escaped the prison with Van Loo's help eventually told a Union general about her and was so impressed that he recruited her as a spy. Protected by her family's position, she managed to set up a spy ring right in the heart of the Virginia capital, aided and embedded by her former servant, Mary Bowser. With Van Loo's assistance, Bowser was planted in the Confederate White House, the headquarters of the president of the Confederacy himself, Jefferson Davis. Due to the prejudice of the time, of course, black servants such as Bowser were viewed more as furniture than employees, much left human beings, which meant people would largely ignore their presence. However, Bowser was clever enough to play on these prejudices and exaggerated her role as a stupid servant, pretending to be much slower than she actually was. As a result, guests took no mind what they said in front of her, nor did anyone imagine that Bowser was actually literate and could read confidential documents left out in the open. According to Thomas McNiven, a local baker, who made deliveries to the Confederate White House while also acting as Bowser's point of contact, Bowser also had a photographic memory and could repeat documents word for word when she relayed information to him. That is, that just blows my mind. I can't remember words and say them sometimes at points. The intelligence Bowser provided from the heart of the Confederacy had reportedly directly contributed to a Northern victory, even though there's little known about precisely what information that she relayed. Finally, in 1995, the U.S. government posthumously inducted Mary Bowser into the Military Intelligence Corps Hall of Fame. And that's core. I said corpse. I am crime keeper after all. Van Loo and Bauer had been able to hide in plain sight by playing up their roles as sheltered society women and an ignorant servant, and they fooled everyone for a long time. So I really liked those stories, obviously really felt moved and interested in that final one, so I thought I would present that entire story. It's that time again, Lab Rats. 
Queen V is calling me back into the lab with promises of salty fish head goodness, so I must depart. Good night, dear lab rats. Remember, everyone must find their truth, and mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. <laughs> <laughs>